Good morning, everyone. Can I see that? Yeah, it sounds like it's working. Um, welcome to our Sunday morning class. Is that better? Okay. Always need help with this electronic stuff. Um, welcome to our Sunday morning class. Let's start uh, our class with a prayer this morning. <clears throat> Dear God in heaven, we're so thankful for every good thing you give us, especially this morning about being together as a church body. We're so thankful for everyone's health and safety this week. We pray that as we go through our service today that we'll uh, have a humble heart and that we'll do and say things that are pleasing to you. Help us always to remember your son and his life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So welcome this morning, everyone. We are... I don't know how many how many weeks into this uh, quarter, but uh, so far um, we've been talking about these subjects in our class this morning: um, Jesus and the Lamb, the geog- geography and characteristics uh, of the of Palestine and Judea, honor and shame in Jewish society. We talked about the intertestamental period, the story of the Maccabees, and the recl- reclamation of the temple. Um, we talked about Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath and Sabbath controversies. And last week we talked about study materials, books, research materials, history, the Talmud, and some Bible scholars. So um, today we are going to talk about Jewish marriage. And you might be asking yourself, uh, that might be interesting. Um, but what does that have to do with my Christian walk? What does that have to do with me as a Christian understanding the scriptures? So, um, we know the Bible says a few things about marriage. Uh, when we think of the life of Christ, uh, there are some issues and events that centered on marriage in his life. And of course, we can all talk about his changing water to wine, his first miracle in the book of John. Um, if we also think about marriage, we can think about, oh yeah, there was a parable of ten virgins, right, who had their lamps uh, out in that uh, story. Um, the Sadducees asked Jesus about questions about marriage and the resurrection. That's in Matthew 22. Um, teaching on marriage and divorce in Matthew 5 and 19. And, you know, kind of indirectly the woman at the well in John 4. Uh, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, uh, the parable of the lost coin in Luke 15, 8. So there are instances where marriage is talked about, but really not a lot. Um, But the, the writers of the Bible are writing to people in that day, and so they assume that the reader is aware and knows about Jewish marriage and marriage arrangements or the aspect of Jewish marriage. But we really don't. We know about marriage today, but what was marriage like back then? And uh, there's some similarities, of course, to Jewish marriage and our relationship to Christ. And this is described, if you recall, in in Ephesians 5. We'll go there in a minute. 22 through 32, Paul talks about us, the church, and how we are married to Christ. And if we, the church, are married to Christ, it is very important for us to understand this relationship. So, 
Ephesians 5, 22-32, says this, Wives submit, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hates their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So this morning we're going to learn about the first, how the first century Jews were married and which will help us understand this relationship that we just talked about in Ephesians 5 between Christ and the church. Uh, first off, there are three stages or parts to getting married in the Jewish biblical world. And this uh, I'm talking about is pretty much the big picture. So there might be some details we won't get into, but this is the big picture of how that will work. Uh, I can remember, remember growing up in the Midwest, and we always did the same exact thing. When I was little, we would go to a wedding at our congregation. There would be a ceremony. We would have singers in the back, and there would be cake and punch afterwards. And that was it. <laughs> uh, my wife grew up in Canada, and she said they always had a dinner after the wedding. So when we got married, even though we got married in the Midwest, we had a dinner. Um, that was great with me, but I've never been to a wedding in my church where there was a dinner. It was always the same thing. So there can be different ways and different uh, things people do in Weddings, depending on where you are in the states. So, three things that uh, that make up a Jewish wedding, and I'm going to follow these words up. But uh, the first is the shidukim, the second is the kush, uh, kedushin, and the last one is the nusian. And all three of these have to take place in a Jewish wedding. So, I'm going to explain what those are. Uh, the first one is the shidukim, which is the arrangement. Now you probably know that in the biblical world, boys and girls didn't date, fall in love, and decide to get married. In fact, in most cases, up until they're actually married, they have they have may have little contact with each other. Rather, the families negotiate the marriage. Now, a lot of us are older in here, so we know who this person is. 
know this movie? Uh, this is perfect to talk about this morning. Jewish marriage. So, in The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya had a daughter who is ready to be married. So, in most cases in the Jewish world, these arrangements are generally made by the father and most often initiated by the father of the young man. Now, that didn't happen in this story. And sometimes the father would use an intermediary. Do you remember what happened in this movie? He found a matchmaker. So, in the Jewish world, a matchmaker is called a shadkin. And I think this is her on the right. I don't think you can see that very well. Uh, so, in the Fiddler on the Roof, there was a matchmaker. In fact, there's a long song about... <laughs> Matchmaker, make me a match if you remember this movie. And so, in this show, the Shadkin, the matchmaker, suggests the butcher should be the prime candidate for Tevya's daughter. The matchmaker found that the best match was the town butcher. I think his name was Laser Wolf, is that right? I don't remember. That's my guessing. To marry his daughter. So why did, he, why did she pick him? He was successful. He could take care of her. And he could also benefit Tevye's family in the relationship. So in the biblical world, the family is the business. And so in the biblical world, it's very advantageous to be married to another family that might supply something you need. For you to marry a good family was very honorable. It sets you up to be honored in society. But in this movie, you know what happened. <clears throat> Tevya's daughter didn't want to marry the butcher. She wanted to marry the tailor. Similar to our world today. A family name today is much, uh, much less emphasized. It seems we will marry anyone we love because we focus in on the individual, not the family. As you recall in the Old Testament, Solomon had 300 wives, and most were married for what? Political reasons. They were political alliances. If you married the daughter of some king in a country next to you, he is going to be friends with you. He's not going to come and attack your country because the daughter lives in Jerusalem, you have a relationship together. Now, oftentimes, these arrangements are made, and they be made early in life, even as early as the time of birth. Two families will pledge or give their son or daughter in marriage to some other family they have a relationship with. But generally, it takes place later. Boys are considered marriageable at 13. Girls are considered marriageable at age 12. However, children this age don't usually get married, but could. If you're 20 and not married in the biblical world, you're on the weird side. Why? Because marriage is an integral part of their society. Titus 2.3 says this, Likewise, teach the older women to be rever reverent in the way they live, 
not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train their younger women to love their husbands and children. Now, this verse strikes us as a little strange. Why? Because when we get married, we get married for love. That's what we do. There, if there is no love, there is no marriage. So I knew someone, if I knew someone was about to get married and asked them why they wanted to get married, what would they say? They would say, well, because we love each other. So if we asked them, give me another reason, what would they say? Dead silence. But in the biblical world, you didn't get married because you loved the other person. Or at least the vast majority of people did not. So in the biblical world, you had to learn to love your spouse. And we just think that's the weirdest thing. In fact, we probably cannot fathom what it would be like to marry someone, A, that we hardly knew, or at least that we didn't love. But in the biblical world, that happened all the time. So it was the responsibility of the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. So it says in the second chapter of Titus. Genesis 24, 1-9. You'll remember this story. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to his senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my right thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. He was sending a matchmaker, a shadkin, to find a son, find a wife for his son. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back here, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angels before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from your oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there, Abraham said. Said this to his servant to find a wife for his son and, and, and said to him, Go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So, Abraham sends a matchmaker to find a wife for his son. But sometimes, and often, the father himself would search the local community or extended family for a suitable bride for his son. Once he found a worthy young woman and family, the father of the young man would go to the father of the selected young woman and discuss an arrangement. This arrangement would be agreed upon by the fathers and written down, and it was called... A ketubah. 
So a ketubah is the document written up that says what the two parties bring to the marriage, what the grooms brings to the marriage, and also what the bride brings to the marriage. But part of the arrangement and written in, in the ketubah is what is called the mohar. The mohar is the bride price. It was not purchase, but compensation. So if we go back to Genesis 29, we find this. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. That was the mohar. That was the price he was willing to pay for his daughter. So there's three basic ways that the mohar, the bride price, works. One, the groom pays a price to the bride's father, as in this case. Seven years of work. The ketubah will say what the groom will pay the father because he is losing a worker family member. So in Genesis 29, Jacob worked seven years in return for Rachel, giving Laban compensation. Two, sometimes it's the, what the father gives to the bride. The money price, the money or price was important for two reasons. If the groom dies, she has the money to support or if she, for her support, or if she is divorced, the money, the mohar, is retained by her. And the third way is the groom gives a gift to the bride himself. You guys remember the parable of the lost coin. In the biblical world and the Mideast today, you see women with a veil with coins hanging on them. This veil is their mohar. This veil is the dowry, their support. If she is unfaithful, her husband will take a coin from her headdress. Or, if she loses a coin, she is shamed in society. So if you remember back to the story, what does she do? She sweeps and searches, searches hard for this coin. Why? Not because she lost money but because she would be ashamed to go out in society without that coin on her headdress. It's not the money. She will be thought as an adulteress or a shameful person. So all these arrangements were drawn up in the ketubah. It is a legal binding document. Once the ketubah agreement is made, a bride uh, and a bride price is determined, both the young man 
and the young woman agree, the two will go through a ritual cleansing called a mikvah. We've talked about this before. Um, what is a mikvah? It's a bath. It's a ritual cleansing. It was done in this case by the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be, but a mikvah is done in many cases in the Jewish world for ritual cleansing. So it's immersion, it's immersion in the bath for both the bride and the groom. It was a dedication by the bride and the groom to each other. What they are saying is that I belong to you and you alone. By my actions, I have forsaken all others and I am now dedicating myself to you alone. The next step, the condition or the betray, uh, the pledge or the betrothal. Um, the bride and groom now go and stand under a tent where there is a public ceremony. Three things happen under this tent. They make a pledge to each other. They exchange gifts or jewelry and they may say this, Behold, you are consecrated to me with this ring according to the law of Moses and Israel. And they'll drink a cup of wine. Wine is the picture of celebration or joy. So having done this, gone through this ceremony, they have considered, they're considered to be betrothed, pledged to each other. This is the legal arrangement. However, they're not yet married. They cannot cohabitate. They will not be allowed to do this for almost a year. So, there's a waiting period. They go through this pledge under the tent. They exchange gifts. They make vows, but they're not yet married. So, what's happening at this point? Uh, we have a contract. The ketubah. A bride price has been paid. They have taken a mikvah bath, ritual cleansing, pledging each to each other. They've gone through the public ceremony and drunk wine and dedicated to each other. Now they are legally bound and pledged to one another. So what is happening during the betrothal period? What does the groom do? The groom has to go prepare housing. The family has a home with a courtyard and the son will go and add a room to his father's house for them to live in. And this takes, uh, this takes a long time. Why? Because he's not just building a room, he's got other work. He's a farmer, he's a fisherman, he's a tradesman. So this part of the job for him is, when he's, uh, is a part-time job. So when he's finished, he and his bride will have a place to call their own with his, within his father's house. What is the bride doing? She's preparing her ornaments, her dress, her jewelry. Uh, sometimes after nine months a year, the, the groom will come and get her. But she does not know when he will be up. He does not know, so she must be ready for him to come. So as time goes along and time gets close, she, she must be prepared because she, is, she does not know exactly when he will arrive. And the last stage, finally, uh, the wedding. Finally, the father looks over and approves the new addition to the house. 
that the son is constructed and tells the son that it's time to go get his bride. So the groom gathers his groomsmen to go with him and get his bride. There will be an announcement in the community. The groom is on his way and they will blow the shofar, the ram's horns, to announce it. That the groom is coming and the marriage festival is about to begin. So a wedding is a big social event in the entire village. So when the community hears the shofar, they know that something's about to happen. The wedding party comes to the bride's house. The bride is then carried in a leader back to the house of the groom. They have the ceremony. They exchange blessings and drink a cup of wine. Then they go into the wedding chamber and consummate the marriage right there. And the marriage supper begins. So the entire community will be celebrating and having a party that generally lasts three to seven days. I've never heard of a wedding three to seven days here. Not even one day. And in three to seven days, they will eat and drink a lot. So much so that, as you call, Jesus had to help out making wine for the guests at the wedding he was at. So, that's a quick version of what a wedding and marriage is like in the Jewish world. So, our question today is, how does this wedding process affect us? How does this relate to my relationship to Christ? Uh, Paul, in his writing, assumes we understand this wedding process. So, we'll look at Paul again and some of these answers. Um, what did it say? God decided that he would secure a bride for his son. Who was the bride? The church. Ephesians 5, we just read, discusses that. Ephesians 5, 22 through 27. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water and through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So how was the church selected? Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says... He chose us in Christ. The Father, God, chose us, selected the bride. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, holy, blameless in his sight. Who was the matchmaker. Second Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I feel divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her husband. Paul, the matchmaker, the Shadkin, presented us, the church, as a pure bride to Christ. So we, the church, have been chosen, selected by God, and betrothed or pledged to Christ. What is our ketubah? 
Remember the ketubah was the written document. What is our written document? The New Testament, the Word of God, spells out what Christ gives us and what we give to Him. What was the mohar, the bride price to be paid? Jesus' blood, His life. Acts 20, 28. Take heed unto yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to feed the church of the Lord which he has, what? Purchased with his own blood. First Corinthians six nineteen through 20. says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's the mohar. God paid a price for us. Bought it bought us, purchased us with the blood of his son. The mikvah bath. What's the mikvah? Ritual cleansing that we are sanctifying ourselves and dedicating ourselves to the groom, to the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of the mikvah? To cleanse and dedicate yourself as a, as a bride and groom, you will say, you would take a mikvah to say, I belong to you and you alone, washing away your past. And this is what we do. Our baptism is our cleansing, our mikvah bath. First Peter 3.21 says, Baptism is but a pledge of a good conscience toward God. Acts 22.16, Baptism washes away our sins, cleanses us. So baptism is our mikvah, or ritual cleansing that dedicates us to Christ. Change of gifts and cup of wine. Matthew 26, 27. He took the cup. This is the covenant. This is the covenant. This is the ketubah. This is the arrangement which is poured out for many. Exchange of gifts. He gives us the Holy Spirit. What do we give? We give him our life, our dedication. So as a church... We are pledged. We have a ketubah, a covenant agreement. We have a bride price, a mohar, which is paid by the blood of Christ. We went through the mikvah, our baptism, to dedicate, our, to dedicate ourselves to him. We have drunk a cup of wine. We do that every Sunday to celebrate our agreement and dedication to Christ. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we give him our life. But we are pledged. We are betrothed. We are not yet married. So now we are in that waiting period, right? Remember the groom went and built a house, built the room on his father's house. So we're waiting for the groom to come back. And what is Jesus doing? What did he say he would do? He said he would go prepare a home for us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Oh, i got to read it up here. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. So, the bride, us, we're getting our ornaments together. What would that be? We're preparing for Christ to come back. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, holiness, to be pure when he returns. Ephesians 5.25-27 We're trying to be that pure virgin that, that is ready for the groom when he comes. And at the right time, Jesus will come. And when he comes, the Father decides when all things are ready. And no one knows but the Father, it says. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, for the, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Jesus will come back for his bride, us, the saints. What will that return be like? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven and a cry of command with the archangels and the sound of the trumpet, the shafar of God. So the shafar blows and Christ returns to take his bride, the church, home and the marriage supper and celebration begins. Revelation 19, 6-9 Then I heard what was then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give, glory, give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he added, These are the true words of God. Won't that be a great day for all of us? Right now we're in a waiting period. We are under contract. But we are waiting. We have a ketubah, the word of God. We have the mohar, the blood of Christ. We've taken the mikvah bath, our baptism. So we're legally bound to the relationship with Jesus. So we're, we're waiting, and that time Jesus will come, we will live with him forever. So, this morning, I'm sure you didn't expect us to talk about Jewish wedding and how that really related to our relationship to Christ. And we can read that in Ephesians 5, and uh, be thankful that God has set this up this way, and that we will have a celebration when we get to heaven uh, and be with him. Um, that's our lesson this morning. Thank you for your attention. Uh, you're dismissed.